The topic and question of how much money school superintendents make uh, is one that we've talked about a lot. It gets people pretty fired up because there is a vast difference between what teachers make and what their superintendents make. And around here, we have had some staggering figures for how much school superintendents make. Yeah. And to it that all end. Comes, oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Well, well go ahead. I was just going to say, and it all comes down to, yeah, how many times the salary of the average teacher does a superintendent make? And is a superintendent due to make, given the fact that many of them do not have teaching certificates and couldn't teach if they wanted to? And what matters, I think, is part of the question is what makes a superintendent worth what they make? Um, it's a really interesting question because some people, most people think superintendents make too much. I don't know of a superintendent that doesn't, in a, a uh, secondary school district that doesn't have a teaching certificate. I mean, usually, usually, unless it's like a private school, but usually that's how you start is you start off as a teacher, you get your master's in public administration, and then you keep going. Um, but what should they be making? So there's legislation being proposed in Missouri that would cap the salaries of superintendents to an amount no greater than five and a half times the salary of a first year teacher. This is where we're all gonna do a bunch of math and Channel 5 did a lot of this math for us. Again, so think, um, all right, so they said right now, the state requires school districts to pay a minimum teacher salary, $25,000 for a beginning teacher, but the statewide average first year salary is 34,000. Um, and they said first year teacher. So that's some easy math. I mean, five times 25,000 plus a half, you're looking at 130, somewhere yeah, in there? right about. Okay. Uh, I know of superintendents that make three or four hundred thousand in the state of right. Missouri. And and that's what they point up is that they went through all of the ones that are right now over that, that are over you know, five and a half times the the average teacher salary. And it's extensive. A lot of them are around here, as you might imagine. A lot of them are around St. Louis and St. Joseph. That's, uh, I mean, the Springfield district is the one that's really out of whack. That one is 766%. So 7.6 times the average teacher salary is what the superintendent there makes. All the way down to Fox C6 and Ledoux, which are both St. Louis area, uh, they're right just above 5.5%. Yeah, around here. And again, this is starting teacher salary. So, um, yeah, Springfield, seven, uh, North Kansas City, it's 750%. I was looking to see where Casey Moe falls on here. Um, because part of the reason I want to talk about Kansas, oh, there it is, number 30, 557%. Part of the reason Kansas City is an interesting study in this, and perhaps an argument against legislation like this, is that not every district is the same. Sometimes you need to bring in somebody with more experience. You need to be able to attract someone like we had for a while in Kansas City, Missouri, to be able to get us back to accreditation. Sometimes you, you need the money to be able to draw somebody in like that. Or sometimes they sign contracts or they get bonuses for, for hitting benchmarks like that. Can we cap it at a certain amount? Can, can, we, can we go higher than that? Can, can we give it a range? that allows us to go higher if we really need that power? Yeah, well, that's an excellent point. Yeah, what what do you do if you need somebody who is more talented and, and more is required of them than would be required of the average school superintendent in mid-state Missouri? 
then does it make any sense to have that same thing? Now, when we talk about five, five and a half times the average teacher salary, is that the statewide average or are we talking the average teacher in that district? Because that's going to vary a lot, too. And again, it's five and a half times the salary of a first year teacher, which is going to be significantly lower than just average teacher salary. Um, Let me look at the legislation. Hold on a second, because it's, oh, access denied. Whatever. (laughs) We can get to the actual legislation that would help. Um, It just, the bill was scheduled to be heard on Monday. We should be able to, oh, the hearing was canceled. Maybe that's why we can't get to it. It just says, if passed, the legislation would cap the salaries of superintendents to an amount no greater than five and a half times the salary of a first-year teacher. In theory, what would happen is it would be in that district. You you would think yeah. it would be because a first-year teacher in St. Louis makes more than a first-year teacher in Macon or wherever. And even just inside a particular area, I mean, in the Kansas City area, you can imagine there will be places where the, the average teacher salary is going to be higher than other districts that are nearby. I mean, and that kind of bears out a little bit in the numbers because you figure the higher the teacher, the average teacher salary is going to be, or the average first year teacher salary is going to be, the lower the percentage would be for the superintendent to make over that. And that bears out. I mean, number 32 on the list is Ledoux. Right. Ledoux is a St. Louis suburb. That's an uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's an incredible amount of money. So uh, you know, you go up and you start to see some of the poorer districts um, that that you know the, where the superintendent is making a lot more because the teachers' salaries are lower. So what do we think about the legislation? What do we think about a state law telling districts what they are allowed to pay their superintendents? Um, Because that's what we're talking about is taking that control away from school districts and saying, we don't think there's any reason for any district in the state to have a superintendent who makes five and a half times more than their starting teacher in the district. This is really good political legislation. This is going to be popular with voters. I get it. it. Or for the representatives that represent the voters. I want some wiggle room. I, I, I think that there are some superintendents that need that deserve to make more there are some superintendents that are better than others yeah um and and maybe the way you do that is you build something into the legislation that says an exception can be granted by a petition to the state under these circumstances you know and and you lay out why you would have a particular superintendent who would be able to make more than that and then still give them the ability to go and get some kind of an exception while they're in the process of regaining accreditation or something along those lines what this might also do then is school districts will raise, in theory, will raise their starting teacher pay so that they can pay their super. In theory, everybody makes more than. Yeah. In theory, everybody is tied to this um, right. with that same formula. It just says superintendent, but in theory, if you raise your starting teacher salary, then you can raise everybody based on can that we, five and a half. Can we do something like this with CEO salaries? Because, you know, <laughs> I'm starting to think that that might not be a half bad idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, how do we, I, I have mixed feelings about this a little bit. I, I get it having taught. I mean, I understand it. It stinks when you feel like the teachers are doing all the hands-on groundwork and the superintendent sits in the big office and you kind of wonder why, why they get all the credit and you kind of wonder why they get all the money, but they're also the one that is fired or has to resign if the district doesn't do well. Yes. And that's how it usually works in an organization. How much should they make and what should decide that? And if this isn't the metric, what should it be? Or or sometimes a superintendent does a really good job, regains accreditation, and then gets fired anyway. 
Yes. Many, <laughs> many, many strange things have happened. Um, yeah, somebody said, I, I get the um, the middle management of school districts is a sore subject also. That's where I agree with you. Somebody said, yeah. cap the number of assistant superintendents. Yeah, I'm with you. Do something about the middle management of districts. I there, It's heavy. Sure, and, and you can do that based on population of the district, too, because you're going to have some districts where you don't need any assistant superintendents. Again, if you're talking about a school district that has 5,000 kids in it in the entire district, that's going to be very different than one that has 35,000 kids. Yeah, somebody asked the question, what happens if you can't find a superintendent who will work for that amount of money and, it stay, and the job stays open? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it, that's what would have to do. Um, so what should superintendents be paid based on then? If it's not this and you were to put another metric in place, what is it? Um, because I think, unfortunately, there are some things that you can't quantify. I mean, a lot of things you can. You can look at a superintendent's track record, you know, of test scores. And although I sometimes think that's a that's a crummy measurement of of student success, but it's the measurement that we have. But sometimes you have superintendents that are just really, really good leaders. And that doesn't show up in numbers. It, do, it doesn't show up in scores, but they are just really great leaders. What do you do if it's their first superintendent job and you don't have test scores and that kind of thing or, or school success to, to look at because it's their first time? Yeah. And how long do you give them? How long do you give them to, you know, to be in that job before you say, okay, this isn't working out, that you, we're starting to see flat numbers across. Nothing is rising. 913-586-7798 if you want in here. What should the number what should the number be based on? I I like that the state's looking at it, but again, this is this is just going to be popular with voters. I think there are some some flaws in this. The hearing will be interesting and it was canceled because of the weather earlier this week, but we'll see what ends up happening with it. 913-586-7798 if you want in. Still to come this hour, we have another one of these stories of a couple that lived in a house with a relative who had died a while ago, and they were making bank off of it. I'll get to that coming up on KMBZ. 913-586-7798. Man, this story was all over the place the last couple of days uh, about this couple that federal prosecutors are going after saying they cashed in more than $200,000 in pension and social security benefits uh, from a person whose body they hid in their home. Yeah, I remember talking about this when the story broke last year. And now, uh, I mean, the, <laughs> the the court action is happening. And so USA Today picked this up the other day. And it's just been it's been going around the country again with people who can't believe that this went on. It's not the first time this has happened. But the the fact that the dead relative was in the back room in a bedroom and just left there following death for six years while they continued to collect Social Security benefits. Needless to say, the government's not terribly happy about that. Yeah, and, you know, still asking questions about how it was able to happen. And, yeah, we talked about this a lot when this happened. Um, One count of wire fraud and two counts of theft of government funds. And the question in part was, how did nobody realize that this person was missing all that time? Yeah, and... I mean, it, boy, that piece of it speaks to a lot of American society right now. I mean, the idea that you could have somebody who is a sick relative and after a while, people just stop asking. Nobody sees them and it's just, well, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So now this is going to be in federal court. Um, Man died at the age of 81 in 2016 and nobody reported his death. Yeah. Um, I just... 
a lot of the conversation is about do you, what do you have to do when someone dies and what if you don't do it? Yeah, because the tricky part is now there is no law in the state of Kansas that says you have to report somebody's death. Say that to me again. You do have to or you don't have to? You don't. There's, there's no law that says you have to report somebody's death. And that's so weird to me because, as we've talked about before with the other scam cases, you know, where there was a guy in California whose mom died in China on a trip there or Japan on a trip there. For 30 years, he collected benefits because it was yep. easy to not tell the federal government that that person had died, which then leaves it to the federal government instead, which they should be doing anyway, to check and always make sure that the people they're paying are actually still alive to get the benefits. Yeah, and to be clear about what I just uh, about what I said, yeah, the, the the law only deals with how the death itself is treated. If you're taking money that that person is no longer entitled to because they're dead, that's a crime. I mean, that, for sure, that, yeah. that is one hundred percent illegal. That's where all the the fraud charges that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Jamie, stem from, is the fact that they're alleged to have taken all of this money, about two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars in benefits, uh, in retirement benefits and uh, and Social Security and all of the rest of it that they were not entitled to because he was entitled to them and he died. So that's the crime in the middle of this. The other piece of it is there's no real laws governing what you have to do with somebody's body after they die because you're given so many options. You can cremate, you can bury, you can do a lot of different things. There are laws that say there are things you can't do with a body, like bury it out in the front yard or abuse of a corpse. I mean, those those yeah. laws do exist. But in this case, there was no allegation that the corpse itself was ever abused. It was just left. And I'm surprised that's not abuse. I'm surprised that you if if you want to, you know, your roommate, let's say your roommate dies and you're you know, you're in charge of their affairs. Can you just live with the body? I mean, like they did, and yes, it was the theft part that's a problem, but can you just keep the body in a chair? Yes. Just live with the body until it... I am surprised that at some point there's not a, a health issue or public health issue related to that somehow. Dead bodies don't spread disease. So there really isn't... I mean... <laughs> yeah. You... Smell? It's, it's, it's gross. Yeah. I mean, and that was another thing that, that everybody was wondering about when this case first came up, when they said that body had been there for six years. I think it was like in July or August of last year mm -hmm. that we all learned about this, mm -hmm. that, uh, that that body had been there for six years is how on earth. This isn't a neighborhood. This is yeah. not some house that's out in the middle of nowhere. This isn't like a farmstead. This is a house in a neighborhood. I remember seeing the pictures of it on the news, and there's neighbors like right there. And nobody detected anything nobody smelled anything nobody got any indication at all now i was listening in a little while to dana and parks yesterday and dana made mention of the fact that she had talked to one of the detectives in overland park who had worked this case and said that that house was filthy absolutely just stuff thrown everywhere that it was not in good shape just kind of just this side of a hoarder situation that uh, you know, that may have had something to do with it. If, if the house always smells bad, are you really going to notice when another bad smell crops up? And I'm just, I mean, this is an Overland Park. It gets 100 degrees here in the summer. Yeah. I guess if you keep the air on all the time and just block off the ventilation, never open the windows, I mean, so that the air can't flow back and forth, I guess nobody would would notice the smell. 
and that may have been one of the things that they did, especially early on, is just turn the air conditioning down to nothing. Turn it down as, as wow. far as you can and make sure that it's as cold as you can get it in that room because that's going to stop a lot of the, the natural processes from happening or at least mitigate them. And they said that by the, the time they found him, the body was effectively mummified. So at that point, there's no smell anyway. Somebody said abandonment of a corpse is a crime. They didn't abandon it. It was still there. Yeah, they were still in control of it. Right. If, if they had dumped it somewhere, yes, that's a crime. They didn't. Wow. I mean, you got to be pretty motivated to collect the money to be able to. It's amazing what people will do for the money in cases like that. I mean, yeah. again, look at the case that we're dealing with out of Colorado in which they were right. in financial trouble and let oh, 200 bodies rot. Right. Now, inside. that's obviously a problem. And, and But you notice that even in that case, what came up first? The fraud charges. Yeah. Yeah. And they may be hit with a ton more charges after that. I mean, it might start with sure. fraud and then and then it'll go on from there. So, um, yeah, somebody said the fly should have been an indication. I, you know, I, if not everybody pays attention. Yeah. And again, maybe there weren't any, you know, if they kept that room cold enough and kept kept it sealed, you know, kept all the windows closed and everything else, then there there may not have been. Um, and, and the fact that they said the body was mummified and you know, not to get too, you know, into the gooey stuff about this, <laughs> but that's another indication that maybe there, there wasn't any access to the things that would normally break a body down. There's nothing you can do about the bacteria, but right. there's plenty you can do about, you know, things like flies and other insects and things like that to try to keep them out. So again, federal charges and we'll, we'll follow this one, um, and continue to see what happened there. I want to throw in really quick um, about the credit card scanners while we have just a quick second before we uh, take a break here. Uh, more of these illegal credit card scanners have been found on gas pumps, this time in Blue Springs. I feel like I need to educate myself on what to look for. I, like, this is not a thing that I would pay attention to. No, yeah, and there's there's one great tip that they gave in this article, and it really isn't something to look for. But if you're suspicious, um, and and it, I mean, it doesn't take any time and it doesn't take any effort. So really, if you use a pump, if you use a gas pump and pay at the pump, you should do this anyway. All you have to do is when you walk up to that credit card scanner, usually there's a little lip that sticks out where you put the credit card in that has that slot in the middle of it. Grab a hold of that lip and just try and move it a little bit. If it doesn't move at all, if it's nice and solid and in there, you're okay. If it moves or you can pull it off of the outside of the scanner, that's a phony. Don't use it. Go pay inside. And I'm always the person that just does it really quickly yeah, outside at the pump. I don't pay that much attention. So I need to start looking. Yeah. Um, and and the, the, even the picture they show, the phony one does not look phony. It looks like it's supposed to be there, but if you go to pull on it, it should not come off. You shouldn't even be able to move it. Blue Springs police said officers went to all of the gas pumps in the city this weekend. That had to have taken some time to see if they could find any of the illegal scanners. And that was when they went around and checked. Yep. So, so yeah, just be careful of it. And we've had this happen all over the area. It happened in Olathe, I think about uh, maybe a year ago that they mm -hmm. were finding a bunch of these things. And so, yeah, anywhere you go, it's a possibility. And like I said, it takes no effort to just grab onto that thing and give it a little tug and see if it moves. Yeah. All right, we'll take a break. Coming up, we have a couple of stories out of Colorado. Uh, the first one has us asking, why wasn't this police officer tested for DUI after a crash? And that's just the beginning of where things went wrong with the story that we'll get to coming up next here on KMBZ. Oh boy, this next story. Out of Denver, 
Uh, and we start back with a crash that the police officer Chris Maroney was in back July 21st of 2022. He was going 80 miles an hour in a 30, driving recklessly, went over a curb. According to witnesses, I mean, the crash itself was just spectacular in the worst possible way that he went over the curb. Sparks flew out from under the vehicle, crashed through a fence, went through several front yards. The debris field from this crash went more than 700 feet. So he was cooking and lost control of the vehicle, came uh, came to a stop in a front yard on Monaco Street, if you know the area at all. And according to the uh, police reports, they, they estimated he was going 80 and a 30, lost control, and it just, there was smoke and he was ejected from the vehicle. The crash was that violent that he was ejected from the vehicle. The hitch to this is, well, there's a, there's a bunch, as Jamie alluded to a couple of minutes ago. The first thing is, by the time the police got to the scene, he was already gone. The ambulance had been, saw what kind of shape he was in, and that was not good. I mean, he suffered a brain bleed, broken bones, a broken orbital bone, which is around your eyeball. I mean, he racked himself up really terribly, especially when he was ejected from the car. But the cops got there after he was already gone from the scene. So there was no way at that moment for them to test him for the presence of alcohol. Yeah, we should point out this was two o'clock in the morning and he was off duty at the time. And I just wanna read uh, real quick the description of this wreck. And then there are a couple other problems here that we'll get to. And, and part of the reason that this is coming up is because of what happened then last year. And if, if police had just done certain things in this first wreck, maybe it would have changed the outcome later. Um, they said he crashed through four residential yards he went through a light, he hit a bump, there were a bunch of sparks that hit the ground. So a witness turns around to see what happens. There is debris, there is smoke, and then the body that had flown out of the vehicle. Um, so problem number one, in part, is that by the time police get there, he'd already been taken to Denver Health Medical Center. Another problem in all of this is that police did not turn on their body cameras when they investigated the scene other mm -hmm. than when they interviewed two drivers who witnessed the accident. In a written report, they said they did not find any evidence or dr of drugs or alcohol in his car. There seemed to be some debate about whether those cameras legally had to be on, and it kind of depends on who you ask. Right, and they said under the current policy, you have to have anytime you're investigating a scene because they want to be able to go back and see what you saw in the moment that if you looked in that car and saw you know there was a baggie full of white powder you know sitting there in the driver's seat or whatever that that would be visible on the on your body cam footage because it's looking the same way you are but they said that uh, uh you know at the policy you know under the policy at the time that the wreck happened a year ago that there were that the rules were less clear about when you had to have your body cam on and so they did it when they were like you said they did it when they were interviewing the witnesses but when they were investigating the scene and just walking the scene, they didn't have any footage from body cams because they turned them all off, which makes you wonder why. Yes. Something else you then wonder, and this was KDVR uh, out of Denver that did a very deep dive into this story, is it, 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 there just seems to be a lot of questions about how hard police worked to find out if he was under the influence at the time. Um, and, and there are people that are saying they had the ability to further the investigation and, and chose not to. 
So police sergeant gets to the hospital. He asks the two paramedics that transported him if they observed any signs of alcohol or drug consumption. Both said no, but but he never regained consciousness during the medical transport. So what would you observe if the guy's unconscious on the way? Um, They also both had an N95 respirator and had one on Maroney on the officer. So again, you're blocking things that you would be able to observe. Uh, The officer was intubated and um, they said, you know, police can check for impairment by getting close, you know, just to get up close to their mouth while they're breathing and see if see if you smell anything. But he had the mask on and was intubated. And so you you couldn't do that. You can't do a breathalyzer. And then it gets even more convoluted because they said, "Okay, well, you couldn't do a breathalyzer when you got to the hospital because the guy was intubated. You can't get him to breathe. You can't measure his breath if he's got a tube in. So what about a blood test? And they said, oh, well, yeah, we ask about that, too. And the nurse said that we could have done a blood test. But at that point, we really didn't have any probable cause to believe that he was under the influence of alcohol. So we would have had a good warrant to do a blood test. And we didn't want to do that because there was no probable cause. All we knew is that he had been in an accident. We didn't find any beer cans in the car. We didn't find any of that. So because of that, they couldn't legally withdraw blood and they didn't figure that they could get a warrant, although they never asked for one. They just figured that if they ask a judge for a warrant for a blood test, that they would have been denied. And there's a lot of legalese in this about you can you can get a warrant if the person that's involved is charged with vehicular assault that requires causing bodily injury to another person but he was the only one injured in this wreck that doesn't qualify and so a blood draw would require consent or probable cause and the investigator didn't think they had that now circling all the way back to the beginning of this story Here's here's where you start to get a little clearer image as to why some of the decisions that were made here may have been made because he's now recovered and is back on the force. He was initially uh, he was suspended without pay for reckless driving and for for the wreck and everything else. So he was suspended without pay. But now that he's recovered, he's back on the force. If, however, he had been found to have been driving this is terrible English. Uh, if they found that he had been driving under the influence, they would have had to fire him. That that was the policy of the department at the time. So since they didn't have to fire him because gee, we don't know if he was under the influence of alcohol at the time. Now he's back. Yeah. In January, he took a plea bargain and pleaded guilty to reckless driving in exchange for, they tossed out some other traffic charges. He paid $228 in court costs and did 75 hours of community service. He did a 10-day suspension from the department. Um, And then, uh, let's see. Oh, it's being served now. Yeah, that's right. It's being served in two blocks, a week in January and a week in February. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Darn. Um, And so this goes back to if, you know, it's, it's one of their guys. This is this is the same department that he works on that investigated the crash. And they must know all of this that as all this plays out. And you don't want to think the police are going to be that way. But it doesn't sound like they went to great lengths to find out if he was under the influence. And if he wasn't under the influence, what caused him at two in the morning to go 80 miles an hour in a 30 and jump a curb and do all this stuff? And lose control of the vehicle and all of the rest of it. Sure, it it sounds like you don't know because you didn't want to know. Right, 
Right. And we've had that happen before. We've talked about that before that, you know, that that will happen. And the problem is you can't prove that the officers weren't trying that hard. I mean, you know now what the options could have been, but it sounds like they had kind of an answer for every step of this. The body camera thing is the part that's nagging on me yeah. as, as much as anything. But that's the part that like, well, why weren't they on weirdly for this? Because it lends to if if you already assume that there was a cover up going on, it lends to the idea that there may have been evidence that he was drinking in the car and they got rid of it because no body cam was on and nobody was there to see if they did or didn't. Now, I'm not saying that happened, but why else would you turn the why else would you turn the body camera on to interview people who saw the wreck and then make right. sure you turn them off again when you go and walk the scene? What's the purpose behind that other than we don't want to know what evidence there is up and uh, up ahead of us? Especially because you know the policy for the city at that time was they didn't have to have them on. Yep. Somebody knew and so that makes me wonder who was the mastermind behind the plan here? There, who who was the one on the scene or the first one on the scene that said, hey, guys, let's just turn our butt. It had to be somebody's idea. And, and it probably came from, you know, whoever was at the scene first. Somebody said, I turned my body camera off. Look, look at the beer can I found. Yeah. You know, and what I think they need to do right away, because it doesn't seem like I mean, this is, as you said, this is a deep dive. They did an extensive article about this. But nowhere in this do I see anything that indicates when the officers who responded to the scene learned that it was one of their own. Yes, you're right. Did they know was, that's not did, in there. Did they know before they got there that they were investigating a wreck involving a cop, an off-duty cop? I'm trying to think of how they would have known it. Um, it doesn't say in here what kind of car he was driving, does no, it? No, there's a picture of it, and I still can't tell. I mean, it, it's just... If, if, did you see the, the picture of the that half yeah. a car that's left? You yeah. can't. I I can't even tell you what style of car that. It looks like it might be a sedan, but the back half of the car is gone. So what they had to do? How much of that was extracting him from the car? We don't know. But it's well, he just, was ejected. So yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it's just completely totaled. Um, and. Yeah, so even the idea of getting a license plate number may have been really difficult because I don't see a back bumper. Yeah, I wonder how, um, the reason I ask is, you're right, all I see is some blue I can, and I don't know cars to be able to tell, and yeah, most of it's destroyed, but it makes me wonder, was it a unique kind of car, and somebody heard the call and said, hey, wait a minute, that's Chris Maroney, he drives yeah. that kind of car. Or did they somehow get a license plate number from somewhere and ran the plate on the way to the scene and they knew that that's who it was? Um, I, or maybe they saw him on the ground. No, he was already taken to the hospital when they got there. Yeah, he was gone. So no. Um, is, that, is that odd to you? That's odd to me a little bit. Was the police response time just slow that the ambulance was able to get there and rush him to the hospital before police even got there? Yeah, 2 a.m., uh, I don't know how far from anything. I mean, I don't know Denver, I don't so I don't know this area of town or or how far into the outskirts or into the suburbs it might have been where you wouldn't normally at 2 o'clock in the morning have a lot of officers patrolling. But I, I'm certainly not going to blame the paramedics. They got there. They found a guy who was dying. They had to get him right to the hospital. I'm looking up the address just out of curiosity. I don't know Denver either. Um, oh, this is right downtown. This is... Well, then probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. Did they slow walk their, their own response because of that?
Oh, no, it's not. I mean, I guess it's, it's, well, no, it's, I mean, it's, this is just east of downtown. It's very close to a medical center. That might be part of it, too, because they were able to get there really fast. That part is just a little weird to me. I, I get it. You take them out of there as fast as you possibly can, but, I mean, Denver, Denver Police Station's got to be nearby, too. Um, so there's no one talking at this point about wrongdoing on the part of police in connection to all of this that happened. But if I'm the Denver police chief, I'm asking some pretty serious questions of whoever responded to that scene. Like, I get that you didn't have to have your camera on, but why did you turn it off? Like, I assume the best. Assume that, they had a good yeah. reason to. Right. You and, know? and give them the give them the ability to explain it. But when you take that action, when you because that's a that's a decisive action on your part to turn the camera back off after you start interviewing some of the witnesses. Explain why you did that. Yeah, somebody said maybe the, the plate was in the debris field. Could have been. Um, yeah, because the bumper could have come off easily. Yeah, and we assume it was a witness that called it in, and so maybe the witness that saw it saw the plate or something, and they asked, you know, hey, can you identify the car at all? Mm -hmm. Could be. Just interesting. All right, we'll take a break. Coming up, we have another story, uh, weirdly, out of Colorado as well. And this is one of those cases where a bar is being held responsible for a fatal crash involving a drunk driver. Get to that coming up here on KMBZ. All right, what's your calls here in a sec? <laughs> Talking about the story, there's a lot to this, but you have a Denver police officer who a couple of years ago was in a pretty nasty wreck at two o'clock in the morning. He was going 80 to 100 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. He ran a red light, he jumped a curb, he went into some yards, he was ejected from the vehicle, which was just destroyed, uh, taken to the hospital unconscious. Um, and now that case is kind of going through the court. He ended up pleading guilty to just um, reckless driving. A couple other charges were dropped. And because he was never charged with DUI, He's just doing a 10 day suspension now from the job. Well, part of the reason he was never charged with DUI, he was never really measured for impairment. Yeah, so without any information, there's no there's no way to charge him. And they came up with all kinds of reasons why, but it looks an awful lot like they were trying not to know. We'll go to, go to the phones and Bill in Oak Grove has something he wants to add in here. Hey, Bill. Hey, how are we doing? You know, I was just thinking they might've, I mean, I'm not saying that Denver's a small town, but the paramedics may have been able to identify him as an officer and responded to the fact that they had an injured officer on the way to the hospital when they responded immediately. That you know, could whether be, be, you're sure, right. Whether it be by looking at his ID or they might have personally known him. But right, or he, I mean, to me. sure, yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he could have had his badge sitting in the passenger seat for all we know. You know, they, it, yeah, it could have been yeah, anything, you you're know, right. That's kind of what's come to mind to me with the fact that, you know, the, why, you know, if you hear, I know with officer shot or something like that, they, that is the priority at the hospitals. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what comes to mind to me. But enjoy your show. You guys have a good day. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Thanks a, a lot, Bill. Appreciate the call, too. Um, questions are coming in about the body cameras being off. Um, listen, I, I'm just connecting the dots a little bit. And that just because it look, looks bad doesn't mean it is bad, but it looks bad. And it's a series of things. If it, if it was just one thing, okay, they just did the body cameras on. But when right. they didn't have the body cameras on, but they did have them on when they interviewed witnesses and they didn't go very, they didn't get the blood test at the hospital. All of these other things, if it's one thing, it doesn't add up. But if it's multiple things, it makes you wonder. Sure. And, and that's, I mean, if, if this had been you or me, 
would they have made that call to the judge to try to get a warrant to draw blood? Yeah, they would. Yeah, because they had no reason not to. Right. You, and, you know, they're not motivated what, to not get the test. Sure. And, and what they're saying is, well, we didn't have probable cause. We had nothing we could show a judge that would lead to a suspicion that he was driving drunk. But isn't driving 80 miles an hour in a 30 and crashing through seven yards enough? Isn't that enough That's, for you to, to at least have a suspicion that maybe this person's impaired? Yeah, especially because you can't ask him what happened. Yeah. You know, did did the brakes go out on the car? I mean, that's something that you could look at, although there's not a lot of that car left. What else would lead someone? I don't know what time bars close in Denver. I'm going to assume it's 2 a.m. Um, or 1 a.m. What else would lead someone at 2 o'clock in the morning to have that kind of a wreck, if not some kind of impairment? Either impairment or he's racing somebody. And he was the only one involved in that wreck. Right. And since there was nobody else on the scene that, that was apparently in any way involved in the crash, then there's no reason to believe that he was racing either. So a lot of questions. And right now the press are asking them and they want answers behind all of this. So we'll follow it and uh, and see what happens with this one. Uh, while we have a couple of minutes, there was another story out of Denver. And this is just further proof that these lawsuits do happen. We know that it's possible. We know that the law says that if you are a bartender, you can be held responsible for over over serving somebody who's in a wreck. Uh, in this case, it is the bar, not the bartender. The bar is being named in a lawsuit where you had an Uber driver uh, who was out. 42 year old mom uh, said a speeding driver ran a red light and smashed into the Tesla that she was driving early one morning. She was killed. Her passenger was critically hurt. And now the lawsuit's been filed against the bar that served the guy that caused the wreck. It's a place called the Crimson and Gold Tavern. And the case that they're making is that they served him and continued to serve him, even though he was in, quote, a visibly intoxicated state. And I mean, I, I know this drives people crazy because it's so subjective. What looks totally obliterated to you and me might look like, oh, that's an average Saturday night for Bob, you know, right. and. And so how can you expect a bartender or a bar to know the difference between, you know, slightly buzzed and still okay to drive, even though I know the commercials say don't drive buzzed and yeah, okay, fine. But how can they tell the difference between somebody who is able to drive and somebody who might halfway home realize he's not? And I don't, I don't know how you tell the difference but I would assume bars give their bartenders training for that mm -hmm. because if not, they're going to be held liable for it. Sure. And, and if I'm a bartender, I'm going to err on the side of caution. You know, either you're going to make more money, the bar is going to make more money, or the bar is going to be held liable for, for a wreck because somebody is overserved. If I'm the bartender, I'd rather cut somebody off. Yes. And, which, and how which do you I know, know isn't easy, but. Right. How many times have you heard the phrase one more for the road? The thing is that takes time. And so that's why I said, you know, maybe halfway home, all of a sudden he goes, over the line you keep getting drunker because i mean you and i could sit at a bar do eight shots of of tequila real quick walk out of the bar totally fine 10 minutes later not so much right, right. uh so again the lawsuit's just been filed there that we'll follow uh coming up speaking of drinking we're getting a new margaritaville here out in kck we'll talk about when that's going to open coming up here on kmbz